Welcome to TIFF Talk, sponsored by Endogastric Solutions, a podcast that interviews physicians and real-life patients about the most common gastrointestinal disorder, GERD, commonly known as chronic acid reflux. Listen to patients and physicians interact, break down the disease from different perspectives, and learn how taking the next step in your treatment can change your life. For our audio listeners, you can see visuals on our YouTube channel at GERD Help. The TIF procedure may or may not be appropriate for your health condition. Only your doctor can explain the benefits and risks of all treatment options. Results may vary. Visit GERDhelp.com for more clinical data. The TIF procedure for reflux was developed by Endogastric Solutions Incorporated. My name is Wendy Prophet, and I am your host this evening. Along with me, I have a nice group of friends that uh, I'd like to introduce you to. First, my associate, Haley Catalano, is a program development manager with Endogastric Solutions, spends a lot of time with our doctors uh, in the ORs and uh, sees um, the, the good that they're doing with our patients. Also, we're so pleased to have Dr. Keith Goldberg uh, with us from Tennessee, as well as his patient and office scheduler, Tina. Uh, so glad to have you both with us. I want to share with you a little bit about Dr. Goldberg. He is board certified by the American Board of Surgery and is a fellow of the American College of Surgeons. He has practice locations in Springfield, Clarksville, and Hendersonville, Tennessee, and has advanced training in general vascular and laparoscopic surgery. Dr. Goldberg's clinical interests include robotic and minimally invasive procedures, such as the TIF procedure for reflux. Tina also had uh, the TIF procedure performed uh, right about 21 months ago now, if my math is correct. So we're so pleased to have her again with us. Want to talk a little bit about some food tips for the upcoming summer as folks are considering TIF and or are recovering and are in that uh, that post-operative diet phase that uh, everybody wants to talk about and nobody wants to talk about all at the same time. So uh, stay tuned. Please post your comments in the comments section. Any questions that you have for Dr. Goldberg or Tina, fire away, and we'll go ahead and get started. Welcome, everybody. Dr. Goldberg, thanks again for being with us. Oh, you're very welcome. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. So let's talk a little bit about GERD. Uh, we have folks who are tuning in and they, they basically run the gamut from they're experiencing heartburn symptoms. Maybe it's new to them. Maybe it's not so new. Some are on medications that may or may not be working right now. Others are in what we call an, a very active phase who are actively suffering, looking for solutions. So um, if you could maybe tell us a little bit about the disease state, what causes it and what its progression can look like if it's left untreated. You bet, happy to do that. Uh, GERD, gastroesophageal reflux disease. So basically acid reflux, heartburn, you know, the way people think about that, uh, you know, maybe laying down, maybe at night, you know, starts with some chest pain, that sort of thing, but they're, there's a whole gamut of different symptoms and uh, problems that can arise from it. Uh, most people are familiar with, you know, the basic remedies, you know, whether it's uh, Tums, uh, Mylanta, uh, moving on to things like Pepsid and even Prilosec, uh, which is well advertised. And those have been kind of the mainstay of treatment, as well as, of course, watching what you eat, which is hard for all of us to do. Um, but, you know, we're really here because 
their neglected treatments of acid reflux. And uh, really, acid reflux is not really an acid problem. It's an anatomy problem. And so if I can just kind of stress one thing to, to people watching right now is really think it's not so much about the acid, but it's about your anatomy. And there is a problem when acid or stomach contents come back up into your esophagus and cause various symptoms. So that's that's really the, the gist of, of GERD or acid reflux. And uh, if left alone, uh, some of the more common things we see are acid burns or strictures, ulcers in the esophagus, uh, which can scar it down and make it difficult to eat or swallow. Uh, you'll hear about people all the time, Wendy, about how many times their esophagus has been stretched, and that's just a, an awful thing, and it just goes on and on. And so we have, we have methods now where we can really safely, effectively, and with very little side effect, uh, take care of that and solve problems like that. Um, you know, and worse problems, that sort of damage can eventually, in some folks, lead to changes such as Barrett's esophagus. Um, or even esophageal cancer, which is just just an awful, awful diagnosis. So that's it in about a, uh, I don't know, 45 second a minute nutshell. Gotcha. Thank you very much. Can you talk about some of the, the typical symptoms that people see uh, that, that could be indicative of, of a GERD diagnosis? Yeah, I, you know, chest pain, right? I mean, it's something, again, always have to be so careful about chest pain, anyone with burning pain, that sort of thing. Uh, you know, they can be confused with a heart attack or, or angina and that sort of thing. So chest pain um, is very common burning, you know, in the lower chest. But, you know, a lot of patients have different types of symptoms. Some patients don't feel that sort of thing. So they may have horse, horse throat, change in their voice, um, you know, what we call uh, regurgitation or laryngopharyngeal reflux. Um, so bottom line is that that liquid can come all the way up without typical burning uh, and actually burn the back of your throat. So we'll get patients from oral surgeons and dental offices with, with dental erosion wondering how on earth did this happen? And they may be having reflux and, and not even really realize it. Wow. All right. How about some of the, the atypical symptoms? Yeah, so atypical symptoms, you know, those would be some of those. Um, it would be, you know, really, again, uh, they could have back pain. They could have shoulder pain. Uh, they may not sleep well at night. They may not even realize that. They may, there may be snoring involved uh, from that, the damage to the back of the throat and whatnot. Uh, again, if they don't have the typical chest pain, heartburn, uh, you know, sensation that would be kind of the classic and typical. So, Again, those things can be difficult. Again, in older patients, um, you know, that can be, again, the most important thing is, is make sure you've got the accurate diagnosis, that it is reflux and it's not some other pathology. And so making sure your patients are safe, number one, uh, making sure that, uh, you know, you're not mistakenly treating uh, heartburn or, or chest pain that is cardiac in origin. Interesting. So... I'm hearing you say that that patients may come from uh, you know almost all different directions. You may have some folks who go to an an emergency room for chest pain that end up in your chair. You may have some folks that maybe go see an ear, nose, and throat doctor. Um, do you typically receive referrals, or how how does that work? 
Yeah, I, I think um, absolutely. So I get referrals from those folks. Uh, so I'll see patients that have been in the emergency room, been in the hospital. Maybe they've been seeing their cardiologist for an unusual chest pain, and they've had a dozen different cardiac tests. And the cardiologist tells them, "Hey, your heart's great. Well, what on earth is my what on earth is this atypical chest pain that I'm having uh, that we thought might be related to you know to my heart?" Uh, so they'll find me that way. A lot of a lot of referrals really are self referrals. I mean, I, I would say the vast majority of people know they have heartburn, know they have reflux. Uh, so you know, there are just a lot of folks out there that are you know that are taking Prilosec for 10 years, 20 years, 30 years. Um, and still having breakthrough symptoms, maybe they're having uh, good results with it, but they don't want to be on a medicine for, you know, 50 to 70 years if they're diagnosed early. Uh, so those folks will find me, uh, and, um, and want to get off those medicines and want a more effective treatment. And, you know, as Tina can say, because she, you know, she schedules and she sees post-operative patients, uh, through the office as well. Uh, you know, we have just found, you know, this procedure that combines with some of our traditional robotic and laparoscopic procedures, but we have found TIFF, the Esophix Z Plus device, that, that really just flipped a switch for us. It flipped a switch from us just giving everyone medications and being able to really give them a definitive solution uh, for their anatomy. Wonderful, wonderful. Tina, Maybe maybe you can share with everybody, you know, about what age you started having symptoms. How long did you suffer from GERD before you ended up, uh, you know, being able to have the TIF procedure? Um, my symptoms started when I was really young. We didn't know what actually caused the symptoms. Me and my sister both had the issues. We got sent to Vanderbilt Children's for testing and everything to try to figure out what was going on, and they still couldn't figure it out. It wasn't until we were probably, I was probably maybe mid-teens that they were like, okay, well, let's see if maybe it's this reflux thing and I got put on medicine at that point and I stayed on medicine from the time I was about 14 or 15 until I had my surgery about 21 months ago. Wow okay Dr. Goldberg what what is the age group that you typically treat or or you know it is there a is there a set age range for for consideration for the TIF procedure? You know um I would say typically anywhere between 25 and 85 uh, would be the age range. So it's pretty broad. Uh, you know, there are exceptions to that. There are, you know, slightly younger patients. Um, obviously, when you're at the beginning of the curve, you know, I'm going to be more conservative initially. I'm going to really be, you know, looking at the medications, the diet, the lifestyle. You know, is there weight loss that, you know, that would help the patient and that sort of thing? Uh, to kind of take pressure off the abdomen and, and decrease some of that reflux. Um, so are there, are there things that we do in, you know, in everyone trying to avoid any type of procedure? Um, you know, because it's, it's a, you know, they've got such a long life ahead of them. But the flip of that is, again, if they've been on Prilosec for five years and we can prove and confirm that they have acid reflux, I mean, there's not a specific age range. I mean, we're not doing pediatrics necessarily uh, here, uh, but, you know, there's, there's no reason that, you know, you couldn't do a, an older adolescent or whatnot uh, in the right situation. 
Um, you know, I find that some of those older range patients, a lot of times it's, you know, it's not just classic heartburn. Sometimes people have damage so bad, as we discussed earlier, or or they, you know, they have a hiatal hernia that's just so big where their stomach is in their chest that they can't eat, that I'll combine their hiatal hernia surgery with the TIF. Uh, and the TIF is really important in all of these procedures, um, you know, to, to repair that valve because just fixing a hiatal hernia, well over 50% of people will still have acid reflux. And, and I do get that question a lot, or I see that out there, people just wanting their hiatal hernia fixed. And I just, I think in general, that's a mistake. Um, I think that the, the TIF procedure is, is just so good and so effective for these people that there's no downside to touching it up. And it's, it's much less invasive. It's much more um, natural in appearance than some of the older procedures uh, such as the Nissen fundoplication that, you know, I see on a, on a fairly weekly basis, people coming in with problems and complications from that over the years. So what, what options are available for folks like that who, who come in? What do you typically look at, at doing to, to help resolve? So, you know, again, first thing, meeting the patient, it's really getting that history, finding out, you know, does their history match the diagnosis? You know, sometimes, uh, you know, patients come in and they think they have acid reflux. And again, you start talking with them and you just discover that it's, it's going to be something else. So accurate diagnosis and really my minimum workup other than the history and the physical and our, our basic get to know you is, is really uh, to, to do an upper scope. Okay, and esophageal gastroduodenoscopies. So take a look. Uh, really take my time in there. Take a look. Take pictures. Really look at that anatomy of that lower esophageal sphincter and determine: is there a hiatal hernia? Is there not? Uh, you know, do to this? Do the endoscopy findings really correlate with their symptoms? Um, and then usually combined with that, I'll get an esophagram or what's called an upper GI, uh, where basically you're going to get a little. Uh, contrast to drink, and it's going to create a uh, an image of your esophagus, and that's really nice because it just it shows the the pulsation. It really shows kind of the physiology of the esophagus better, how it's moving, uh, is it contracting properly? You know, swallowing is is incredibly complex, um, and so that's a nice thing that'll show some of the anatomy, uh, and sometimes it'll actually demonstrate reflux. So those are or kind of just the basic for a classic, I'll call it an easy, straightforward patient, um, you know, to kind of get them on the right path to determine, okay, again, medications, diet, uh, you know, lifestyle modifications, or is this something that, you know, that we should attack and and treat more definitively uh, depending on their symptoms and their medications. Okay. So as you're looking at, you know, just trying to go through typical steps to resolve um, a patient patient's symptoms before they're moved on to um, the, the, the procedural, you know, therapeutic option. When you're talking about lifestyle, what are the things, you know, that, that you typically recommend? You know, we, we talked about weight loss a little bit. Are there cer- certain foods that that are conducive to helping resolve symptoms or are something that you want to avoid, either or? So a lot of that will go in with the history. So, you know, I'll I'll talk with folks about, uh, you know, trigger foods. And so, you know, the basics are this, right? Eat eat your small, well-balanced, healthy meals 
three times a day, right? Which is hard to do when we're out doing what we need to do. Most people don't follow that basic tenet. Um, you know, the fatty foods, the fried foods, overeating, uh, eating late at night. So, you know, that's a pretty common uh, thing for people if their symptoms are at night uh, to, uh, you know, not eat after 5 or 6 p.m. Now, if you're working third shift in the Electrolux factory, uh, then, you know, it's, it's, it's challenging. All of these things are different. And so I try to tailor it to, to the individual patient's uh, lifestyle. Elevating the head of bed at night. Um, and so we'll usually either recommend a wedge or actually elevating the bed itself. So you're still flat, but your whole body is a little bit elevated, two to three inches, uh, just to have gravity, but uh, help you a little bit. But, you know, the fact is people have reflux during the day. Uh, you know, I mean, I have, I have a lot of people, you know, a lot of folks who are out uh, gardening, doing yard work, and, and they can't bend over. Uh, you know, they go to bend over to, to do a little digging and, and regurgitate or whatnot. And so those are people, when they really suffer like that, I mean, it's, it's just, it's, it's a tremendous gratification uh, to, to help them because they can just really do what they, they enjoy um, because medicine isn't going to help that. As I said in the beginning, this, you know, it really is an anatomy problem, but once you reestablish a normal appearing anatomy, uh, then, you know, then almost all these people can go back to doing really what they, what they enjoy with no side effects from that. Excellent. Thank you. Well, I apologize because my, I, I had some animation that I wanted to pull up to have you talk us through the TIF procedure. It is not working right now. So I'm going to ask you if you could, just explain the procedure um, as you do to your patients and uh, help them get a visual. We'll also post a, a link to the animation for folks uh, before we end the program. Just want to make sure that you know you can access that as well. But if you could kind of talk us through it, Dr. Goldberg. You bet. So, so the TIF, transoral incisionless fundoplication. Um, and it is a special device uh, that uh, during your anesthesia, that I pass through your mouth, go down into the stomach, and then we look back up at your lower esophageal sphincter. And it has 20 sutures. Now, these are sutures just like surgical sutures, same material, uh, but they look, uh, compare them to kind of the fasteners on your jeans when you get a new, a new pair of jeans and it's got the little H fastener holding your tags on. But this suture is much stronger. I mean, you cannot snap or break this suture. I mean, I have tried and it's, it's next to impossible. It is a permanent surgical suture. And it is loaded in this device. And it basically, the, the front end is loaded in and it passes through your esophagus into the stomach and then flips out. So that end is in your stomach. The other end stays in your esophagus. So you've basically got this H fastener, this suture, one half in your esophagus, one half in your stomach, pinning the edges together. And we do this with a very artistic mechanical rotation and, and a recreating the valve, kind of about a 300 degree valve. And the difference for this, and one of the things I talk about really is, is compared to the old surgery. The old surgery or the Nissen fundoplication is a 360 degree valve. And this 360 degrees, although every surgeon that performs it, including me in the distant past, all says it's perfect and it's loose and it doesn't cause problems, studies show that in the expert hands, there's anywhere from a 20 to 40% risk of complications. And that can be too tight, 
patients can't belch, can't vomit, and they end up in the emergency room with this terrible gas bloat syndrome. That's probably one of the worst things with denison. So TIF solves that by doing about a 300-degree a wrap. That leaves a little bit of esophagus open. That little bit of esophagus allows stretching so that when you eat, uh, you know, you can eat, things go down well. If you need to belch, et cetera, you can. Um, and so it's a, it's a much more normal physiologic valve. And so we place initially 20 sutures um, kind of around the horn, kind of creating this new valve. And then we generally place another 10 to 15 sutures after that, just touching up the areas, making it long, uh, but, but not compressive. And the, and the beauty of the device is the device is a pretty decent size. It's the size of our typical dilators that we use in the esophagus. So it's literally impossible to make this too tight. Um, it just can't be made too tight because you're doing it over this device. Um, so I hope that provides the, the, the picture, but we basically pass the sutures. Um, we take a good look, we wash it out, we, we touch it up a little bit, and then we're done. And, um, you know, and again, in contrast to the older procedures, my patients go home the same day. I'll say 98% of patients go home the same day now. Um, and, you know, it's interesting because COVID kind of helped me with that. I was used to the old surgery where, where people would stay for two or three days. But during COVID, you know, hospitals weren't allowed to do, at least ours, we weren't doing inpatient surgery for a while. So, you know, I'd have the conversation with my patients. I said, everyone has done great before. I used to just keep them overnight, probably to make me feel better. I'd come up and visit them in the evening and they'd be on their phone or their iPad. And I'd just let them go home first thing in the morning. So we just stopped doing that and they all go home that afternoon and, and people do great. So it's now an outpatient procedure. That's marvelous, wow. So you and, and Haley and I were talking yesterday. Haley, if you'll remember, Dr. Goldberg said, and hey, you know, I oftentimes I find that most of my patients fall into to one of, what did he say, three categories, you know, kind of three examples. Can you share a little bit about that with us, Dr. Goldberg, as far as just a, a typical patient profile and who is a really good candidate for a TIF procedure? You bet. Well, we talked about the age range, so I would say, and again, generalizing, but, you know, you've got some kind of the younger age patients that that just don't want to be on medications, right? They, they want to live a natural life. They, you know, they've tried natural things. They're now on Prilosec, but they can't live without it, without suffering. Um, I've had a number of patients who, you know, they can't go out at night. They can't have a glass of wine at night, that sort of thing. Um, and they just don't want to be on a bunch of medications, certainly at 30, 35, 40 years old, et cetera, or even younger. So that's kind of one. It's the, the people that are doing okay, they got up, they're managing with the lifestyle, but they don't really want to, and they'd love to, to do normal things and not be on medication. Number two is kind of kind of the middle road, and, and that's where you know start seeing people that have been on Prilosec for 20, 30 years. Uh, you know, maybe it does pretty well. They've been on multiple different ones. They've seen a bunch of GIs that that tell them your last resort is to have any kind of procedure, honestly because of the Nissen fundoplication, uh, you know, that's what they're, that's what they're thinking of and dealing with. And, and, you know, when you see those people who had that, that Nissen fundoplication, yes, there are people walking around that did really well, but, you know, you get a handful that, that aren't, 
Um, and and those, those GIs remember it because those people are in their practice forever suffering. Uh, so you've got those people who, who are just on medicine, medicine, they're not getting good control, but no one wants to give them another option until the next class of patient, which is they've been suffering for so many years. Uh, like we talked about, their hiatal hernia is, is gigantic. They can't eat anymore. They're losing weight. Um, you know, and, and so that's kind of that third kind of broad range of the patient where, my gosh, it's, it's at this point, it's a no brainer. Um, it's a much more challenging operation. The TIF is an absolute part of it, but you have to fix that big hiatal hernia. Um, and so, uh, even though it's a harder operation to do, and it's a longer operation when you're doing this and then you're doing the minimally invasive TIF portion with it those people are still going home. I mean, I just, you know, just, just this week did a, an older gentleman and I was convinced, you know, he had pulmonary disease. His entire stomach was in his chest and we're, we're carefully taking that out. The tiff went really well at the end. And I said, well, let's just put this fellow in the hospital. He's certainly going to have to stay overnight. Went to see him three hours later, and, you know, and he's like, oh, I'm a little tired, but I feel great. And uh, I'd really like to go home, doc. Go on home, you know. So I canceled his his admission, uh, but but that's really what's what's been amazing about just the combination, and 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 the combination is is still less invasive than the other procedures because we're just not doing as much surgery uh, down low on the stomach. So the the function of the stomach is much better than than with the older operations. So. On that note, one one question that we get a good bit, and Haley, I'm sure you can attest to this. And you know what, Tina, I wonder if you get this question too sometimes when you are working on scheduling patients. Is you know if they say, well, look, I, I guess I have GERD, I guess I have a hiatal hernia. What if I just have one of them fixed? You know, what if I just have the TIF, or what if I just what if I just start with the hiatal hernia repair? What are your thoughts on that? Well, I mean, for, as far as me goes, you know, and I mentioned earlier that we have data, we have old data uh, comparing, you know, hiatal hernia repair and people that have just had that done versus having the old Nissan even. And we know that 50% of those people, that their, their valve doesn't work. So once, even though you're fixing the anatomy and the hiatal hernia is critical to fixing the anatomy, the, the diaphragm needs to be repaired. That is part of that lower esophageal sphincter. It's the external portion. So we need to fix the hiatal hernia, but that's only half of it. So you have to fix the internal sphincter also. You have to rebuild that with the TIF. So, um, you know, I, I, I just would never recommend that. Um, would Do not think that's a good idea. Um, and ultimately, you know, you don't want to come back and have another procedure later if you can predict it and avoid it. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, the TIF is the, the least invasive portion of all of that. Um, and it's, it's just very natural in appearance. When, when you look at it compared to the, the other surgical types of, of wraps, again, it looks like a normal valve. It looks like if you're, if you're doing an endoscopy on a 16-year-old healthy patient and you look up at that nice, beautiful valve, that's what this looks like at the end. It does not look distorted. Um, it just it just looks rejuvenated. Excellent. It's great to hear. Another question that we get uh, is is you know do folks um, have the ability to have a hiatal hernia repaired either robotically 
or laparoscopically and then also does that impact the TIF is you know doing it one way versus the other is the TIF still done the same way or is there a modified approach to that sure no there's there's absolutely no difference uh, there's absolutely no difference between laparoscopic repair of the hiatal hernia as far as the patient's concerned and robotic um, both the robotic is a laparoscopic procedure uh, we just use robotic assistance. So it is nice. Um, I think that it is uh, technically, uh, you know, can be more relaxing for your surgeon, which you should care about. Uh, you know, it's, it should save our back and allow us to, uh, to work longer. Uh, but you'll have very similar incisions. Um, and so, uh, you know, I like the robotic technique, uh, but I, either way uh, works perfectly well. That's separate from the TIF portion. I mean, as far as an the anatomic repair, you have two phases, the laparoscopic or robotic, and then you've got the TIF once you're done with that portion. So either way works perfectly uh, for, uh, for the TIF. And I would, again, just, just urge patients to, to make sure that, that their physician that's taking care of them that is experienced in this, make sure that they identify hiatal hernias. Because again, I feel that probably the most likely cause for any type of failure with a TIF, if it's, if it's a TIF failure, I think either, you know, you've, you've made a, a wrong decision, it's the wrong patient, or you didn't identify the hiatal hernia. Um, and so if you don't really look and find that hiatal hernia and fix it, I, again, I just think that makes everything more successful and it makes for a, a happier patient with, with just great results. Excellent. Thank you. Tina. Your experience. Yes. Did you have a hiatal hernia? I did. Yes, ma'am. So can you tell us a little bit about how you felt afterward, um, what your recovery was like? I mean, really, the hardest part of the recovery was the liquids. It had nothing to do with the actual surgery at all. It was more of just the, the diet that you have to follow for the 24 hours and then the two weeks it was a little more of a mind game than what I thought it was going to be. Gotcha. All right. So when you woke up from surgery, did you, did you notice any type of difference in how you felt um, throughout the day, you know, versus oh, how yeah. you felt going in? Absolutely. Within a matter of, I would say once the anesthesia wore off good and I was actually like coming around to be more of myself, like I just noticed automatically that I didn't have that deep burning in the back of my throat that was just always there that was just kind of uncomfortable and it was just more of like not even gonna say irritated it just kind of like almost like when you had your EG you could just feel something was there and I thought okay well it's coming you know it's going and then by the next day I was like they were bringing me my stomach medicine because when I had mine, we were staying overnight and they were like, here, here's your stomach medicine. And I'm like, oh, I hadn't even thought about it because I didn't have any reflux, any burning or anything. And that was less than 12 hours later. Wow. Amazing. Amazing. Haley, I have not checked in on our viewers. How, how are we looking? Everybody good there? Great. We do have some really good questions if we want to kind of pivot just a little bit. Is that okay? I would love to. Okay. So we have one that is really good and you've addressed it a little bit, Dr. Goldberg, but it's just, if acid reflux is a mechanical problem, how do my medications work? 
So uh, acid reflux is a mechanical problem, but as you mentioned, so the stomach is full of hydrochloric acid. Uh, and so the way they work is by blocking, depending on the medication, but typically the, the proton pump inhibitors, proton being a hydrogen atom, uh, they block the acid pumps in your stomach. And so therefore, if you have less acid in your stomach, you don't feel the acid reflux. And so it controls, you know, the vast majority of people will have excellent relief, at least initially, um, you know, with blocking the acid. So that's how it works. It blocks the acid so you don't feel the damage. Um, you don't feel the burning. And therefore, it does heal up things like ulcers and esophagitis. And it absolutely is still part of our treatment paradigm uh, so I don't want anyone to go away thinking there's no role for those medications. Uh, we're just talking about, you know, again, people that either want to get off of them, they're not working, they want, you know, something more definitive. Um, so, yeah, so that's, that's how they work. Uh, so, for example, if someone's symptom is regurgitation or reflux all the way up into the throat, it's less likely that acid suppression is going to solve their problem. Excellent. Thank you. Okay. Another one is, it's a great question. Hi, Dr. Goldberg. What is dysphagia and why do so many reflux sufferers get it? Okay. Dysphagia. So dysphagia means difficulty swallowing. So fancy name for difficulty swallowing. And it can be, again, lots of different things can cause dysphagia or difficulty swallowing, but specifically with acid reflux, again, that reflux, that, that liquid coming up into the esophagus uh, will burn the esophagus. Um, it may cause narrowing, what we call a ring or a stricture, where the, the lining or the mucosa, like the lining in your mouth, gets thickened and fibrotic, and it doesn't stretch the way it's supposed to stretch. And therefore, when you eat or drink, food, liquid may hang up in there. Um, and again, it can be kind of an early formation where you just see a little bit of scarring there, or it can be so tight that you end up in the emergency room, um, which we do see frequently, uh, you know, because someone just, you know, kept eating through it, and then they went and had a hamburger or a pork chop or, you know, or a steak, and then uh, we've got to go uh, break that thing up and fish that out. Dilate or stretch that area, heal you, heal you up with the proton pump inhibitors, get it healthier, get it better, take a look down, and then A, continue those medicines forever because you can't stop, or B, treat the anatomy, uh, rebuild that valve so you don't have the acid reflux, and then you won't need to be on those medications anymore. Excellent. Okay. And you've done a great job of kind of answering these as we've gone, but another really good one is um, how long does the TIF last, and is it something that needs to be redone? I'm 34 on PPIs for 12 years. Yeah. Um, well, we have we have at least 10-year data, okay? Uh, Dr. Testoni out of Italy has published at least 10-year data, and, and every year there's new data coming out. So we know that it can last at least 10 years. Now, does that mean everyone lasts 10 years? If you, you know, if you look at their, their overall studies, the original studies with the TIF device. Um, it was approximately, started out about 80%, now, and I'll explain this, 80% of patients in their study had, were off PPIs and had success um, immediately. 
And that lasted through five years. Started to see kind of a trend towards 72, 75% in five years. But I want to be clear about this because I told you this, you know, I think that the results now are much better than those original studies, which were probably done in about 2007 or even earlier. The reason is, number one, the device has changed dramatically since then. Number two, we're putting a lot more sutures than the original device had. The original device in those studies were about 12 sutures. I told you we're putting anywhere from 20, really up to 40 sutures in some situations. Um, number three, we're recognizing the hiatal hernia. So as people are paying attention, more patients are getting those hiatal hernias fixed with it. And so, you know, I feel like we're, we're seeing even better results. Now, will it last forever? No, I mean, there are people that have recurrences. Of my some 200 patients, in all disclosure, I have revised one patient. Um, and I just did her. So after four years, I revised one patient. Uh, it doesn't mean that I had 100% success. Um, I feel like probably, you know, 95%. But, you know, there is an occasional patient, as we talked about, that, that things just, you know, didn't work perfectly. Nothing's guaranteed in this world. But this one revision just saw her back. And again, immediately, she was just so happy. Um, so you can touch these things up. It was really easy to revise the tip. Um, and uh, having not done that, although there are other surgeons around the country that have, um, you know, I was a little wary of it. Uh, but but she's thrilled, so uh, I was very happy. Uh, so yes, it can be touched up without surgical incisions. Um, the TIF is non-invasive, minimally invasive. So yes, you can touch it up. In a follow-up to that, I know we had talked about that patient and how well she had done. Is there anything different that you do as a physician or any steps that the procedure goes through or that the patient will go through for a redo as opposed to the original TIF? Uh, not for not for the TIF specifically, um, and and again I should I should give a disclaimer, not that she had COVID, but during the COVID process she had a horrible cough, um, and she remembers the moment that her reflux came back. Now back to that because of course it's not my fault, um, but <laughs> but anyway, uh, so um, what was the question, Haley? Is anything different about a redo TIF than the original? No. No, there is no difference, um, at least, again, technically, uh, there could potentially be some more adhesions or scar tissue that you don't see outside the stomach that could limit the mobility of the esophagus in the stomach as you're doing it. But within the, the stomach itself, you know, you generally shouldn't see any, any different. Okay. Um, switching it up just a little, we've got a question for Tina. Uh, the person asked, did Tina cough a lot before you had your TIF procedure? Uh, honestly, no, don't never remember. We live in Tennessee, so we have allergies year around, <laughs> but I don't think that I coughed any less now than I did then. Anything that is just super obvious to you when you see some of these patients as Dr. Goldberg that you're like, okay that's not going to happen after they have the TIF, or we see this a lot with a lot of our TIF patients or people that come to us that are possible TIF patients? And I'm sorry. It was kind of two questions in one. Is there anything that you see pre and post TIF in these patients that is kind of a trend for you? Yeah. Like coughing or anything like that? I think more than, I've had a lot of patients that say they cough and it's gotten 
better. And a lot of my patients know that I have had it. So they'll ask me, you know, have you had anything like that? But I think the most thing that I ever get from anybody is them just being completely tickled to death going, hey, guess what? I'm here for my two weeks follow up and I haven't taken a medicine in a week and a half because I keep forgetting it. <laughs> awesome. I love that. Um, Dr. Goldberg, one more for you and two different people have asked this um, in different ways. But it is how long after esophageal ablation can I have the TIF? That's a good question. Um, that really depends on how the esophagus heals. Okay, so and so we haven't talked about we talked briefly about Barrett's esophagus. So for everyone else, esophageal ablation. If someone has Barrett's esophagus, uh, which again damage from acid reflux causes a change in the cells of the esophagus. The, the human body is trying to be very smart. So it changes over to a cell that's more similar to gastric or small intestine cells. And a lot of those people don't feel the typical reflux or heartburn symptoms. But those cells can make a mistake in that transition um, as they're dividing and changing. And that's where uh, you know, we have the concern about that degenerating into what we call dysplasia or ugly abnormal cells that can become cancer. So with that understanding, esophageal ablation is typically uh, performed through a catheter uh, and, and basically burning the inner lining of the esophagus. So burning the lining, causing it to slough off and kind of peeling that inner lining off, allowing the normal cells to heal back in. So that's esophageal ablation. Um, and so the question would be, really, they need to have follow-up endoscopy uh, to make sure that it is healed fully, that there's no residual Barrett's esophagus, preferably um, at that point, um, and that, um, that the mucosa appears healthy and viable. So, you know, it's, it's really probably going to be somewhere like three months um, that I would suggest, you know, that you're probably going to at least wait. Uh, but ablation, again, is usually, a, you know, usually a multiple treatments, uh, unless you just have a little bit of Barrett's, again, that gets into a whole nother thing. Some people have a little bit of change. Sometimes, unfortunately, you'll find an esophagus where you have, you know, 10 centimeters of esophagus that is, is just been just destroyed and damaged and converted into this, this abnormal cell. But it's going to be a little while afterwards. Now, sometimes we like to fix the hiatal hernia and do the TIF before your ablation. And the nice thing about that, if you've got a big hiatal hernia, it just restores normal anatomy uh, for the surgeon or GI that's doing the ablation. So they're not trying to, to oppose their, their, their mechanism inside the hiatal hernia. They might not be able to get everything if the anatomy is abnormal. So this can actually help preoperatively or pre-treatment esophageal ablation. Okay, thank you. Wendy, that's pretty much all we have right now. Terrific. We can wait for some more to come in and well, talk a little bit. Yep, still have a few more things to cover. Tina, I want to I want to dig in with you in, in just a second about uh, the, the food uh, information that we talked about at, at the top of the hour. Um, but first, let's talk a little bit, both of you. Um, Dr. Goldberg, we'll start with you. What does life look like for your patients after the TIF procedure? Uh, you know, I mean, that's really the most gratifying thing. I mean, and I must say, even after after this many years doing it, 
you know, when they come in, uh, you know, this, I have them come in in two weeks. Um, and as Tina said, most of them, even though I tell them they can stay on their medicine those first two weeks, just because we've done surgery and procedures and things are healing, you know, a lot of them forget to take the medicine. Uh, they tell me that immediately, and I tell them this too, the very first night that they have their procedure and they lay down flat, they will not have reflux. They will no longer have reflux. And so it is, it is immediate. Um, and, and people notice this. Uh, they, you know, they notice it very quickly. And again, a lot of times the more severe their symptoms were, the more they recognize that, the more, you know, the more recognize that they weren't able to bend over, they weren't able to lift heavy things, um, and they weren't able to do their normal activities by the time this is all, all done, they could do it all. Uh, so, I mean, people really, there's a, there's a, a lot of people that it's, it's life-changing for those different categories of patients. Um, you know, of course, the patients that, you know, had the TIF and the giant hiatal hernia, those people can eat again. Uh, now, we do have them on that liquid diet initially, so technically they don't eat again, they drink again, uh, but by two weeks, they're, uh, they're on a pretty regular soft diet, um, and so they're eating again pretty quickly, even the years that they've been suffering. Excellent. So, Tina, when you are talking with patients, first, we're going to we're going to talk about, you know, the, the things that y'all talk about when you're counseling them, um, you know, just as far as the diet goes, what the recommendations are afterwards versus what what you did. Can you kind of walk through, you know, what you outlined for them kind of week by week and then what some of the I don't know, some of the life hacks are? What are what are some of your expert tips that you can offer up? Yeah, so like the first 24 hours, they're going to be on clear liquids only. After that, we tell them that, that you can go to a liquid diet. So you're going to need to be able to pour it from one cup to another with no solid pieces or anything in it, um, whether that be broth or, you know, if you have... I have one patient who said she had potato soup and she put it in the blender and she blended it up. And I was like, that wasn't too thick because this was just a couple days afterwards. And she's like, no, it was great. Um, we have to remind them to eat frequently, but eat very small amounts and gradually increase that amount. Because if you eat too much, you are going to know. I'll tell you from experience, I thought I was starving and I started drinking and it was too much and like it hits your stomach hard and you're like whoa yeah that was definitely too much but I tell my patients you know during that two weeks your hardest problem is it's going to be a mind game because you're going to get so tired of liquids that you're not going to want to see another liquid ever you feel like so I tell everybody go on Pinterest create you a board put all kinds of recipes that look good in it start out weeks before you even plan on having your procedure. And when you think you have more, go grab you about 15, 20 more recipes. Because if you're like me, you get tired of eating the same things. And I thought, oh, I'm great. I've got like six or seven recipes. But then when you go talking about eating every two to three hours and you have those six to seven recipes, it gets, that's the biggest struggle. And that's the part that really becomes, became the mind game. What a me. great idea. The Pinterest board. I love that. Oh, technology. So what were the things, what were your go-tos that you remember in the first two weeks? And then what were the things that you really looked forward to that you savored the minute you could have them? Um, I did a lot of the broth, like just straight broth um, due to some gluten allergies and stuff. I wasn't able to eat a lot of the, the thicker, creamier based stuff that other people 
or able to eat. And to be honest, I was just making any of that time. <laughs> um, so I did do a lot of the like broth based soups. Um, I did like um, butternut squash soups, um, cauliflower soups, different things like that blended up. And then at, really at that point, I, by that time, I kind of got tired of eating soups all the time. And I started doing the um, the protein shakes because I could change those up a little bit and have a little bit more flavoring versus these big batch of soups that I had prepared and didn't do enough planning for it. Gotcha. Very good. Okay. What was your first big... I'm going to reward myself. I'm I'm at the right time. And this is what I've really been looking forward to. A piece of grilled chicken. <laughs> really? <laughs> that was like the best piece of chicken I think I had ever eaten in my life. I would think about chicken because I could live off chicken. I kept thinking, I want chicken. I want chicken. I want chicken. And the moment that I finally got to eat a piece of grilled chicken, I was like the happiest girl on the planet. <laughs> That's great. Golly, we hear pizza, we hear burritos. I haven't heard <laughs> grilled chicken before. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> Terrific. Well, Dr. Goldberg, you know, we, we didn't really cover this, but I, you know, feel we absolutely must. The reason that uh, you were drawn to TIFF is due to a person who's very close to you. Um, what were the things that, uh, that she looked forward to, to having and what did she nurse on the first couple of weeks? to my wife who uh who really was was one of the the motivations early uh really suffered in reflux and was on ppis for you know over 20 years um and they just weren't cutting it we'd even taken her to the emergency room now i forced her to go uh to make sure she wasn't having a heart attack she she was not happy with me uh, she wasn't she was fine but but it was that severe she would have just terrible heartburn she'd be sitting up in the middle of the night and you know and and then i'd wake up and, and see her sitting bolt upright so she had really severe symptoms um and so um once she had the procedure done uh you know and it was this was i don't know three four years ago maybe maybe more than that maybe it was five years ago now i think um that she had that done she um she worked with soups we did uh we found she liked chobani drinkable yogurts uh not to plug chobani but you know uh, uh but it could be generic you know any yogurt's fine uh but she liked the flavors so she she really got tired of of plain flavor as as tina alluded to so having different flavors the mango or the strawberry and that sort of thing that helped her she found that that consistency kind of soothed her esophagus in the first couple of days. Uh, you know, patients do get some spasm of the esophagus initially. They get some shoulder blade pain, kind of referred pain from the diaphragm and the esophagus to the back for the first couple of days. Um, and so that really, she liked that more than broth or clear liquids. She liked the, the full liquids. Uh, what did she want? She's, she's a foodie. She loves to eat. Uh, so you know, she wanted a hamburger. Uh, again, I won't plug any specific hamburgers, uh, but she she wanted a burger bad. And my uh, my daughter uh, really controlled her and kept her in line. She was home at the time, and and I don't know that my wife would have had the willpower uh, not to cheat had she not been there as the uh, the the liquid and soft diet food police uh, for her. So having someone that can encourage you and and be there and 
and and remind you why you did this and to just be a little bit patient uh, as far as the diet goes. Um, but uh, you know now she's she's eating everything. Uh, but I think that was that was the big one. I've definitely had people that that want pizza. I have had people cheat. Uh, you know, on occasion, someone will say, yeah, that first week I had a French fry. That wasn't the best idea. Um, and so, you know, we're, we do a lot of education up front, you know, between me, Tina, you know, we've got written protocols for patients that, you know, that we've adapted over the years, um, you know, to really try to help them prepare and, and, and understand what they're going to be going through so they have their eyes wide open uh, for the procedure. Excellent. Well, so so we've got the first two weeks are, are pretty much, you know, liquid pour cup to cup. Is that how how do things progress afterwards and and how long is it typically before a patient gets back to their their normal diet or, or their new modified diet? So, you know, I um, I told them for two weeks, I say start out, as Tina was saying, frequently stay hydrated. Uh, about five ounces, five to six ounces at a time, nice and easy. So you're just not straining that esophagus. You're not filling it up and you're not stressing the valve, letting things heal. Um, and every hour or two, really, I mean, whenever they're thirsty, whenever they like, uh, they, of course, can have clear liquids. Uh, but I do like them to have something with calories in it. Uh, patients do lose a little weight. Now, most patients like that. Again, I tell them it's not a weight loss procedure. Uh, but I definitely have some people that have kept the weight off after doing it, because once you go through this kind of six week diet, um, there are some people that that their brain has transitioned and they don't need that big meal anymore. Uh, so two weeks, though, full liquids, kind of four to six ounces at a time, uh, frequently stay hydrated, make sure you're urinating and that sort of thing. Um, Around two weeks, sometimes a little earlier, uh, sometimes day 12 or so, they can transition to soft food. So um, any kind of egg, well-cooked pastas, I ask them to still cut them up, you know, fine. And, and again, eat still kind of go with the small amounts frequently. Um, I let them have mushy tuna fish and chicken salad. Um, I used to hold that out as a surprise for them because they don't think they can have any meat for six weeks. But if it's nice and moist with a low-fat mayo or whatnot, um, and I let them put that on a townhouse or a Ritz cracker. Um, and the reason being, if they nibble that, that's going to be soft by the time, you know, they're swallowing that. Um, and so that gives them bread. Um, and that leads us to kind of that, that six-week period. I tell them no steak, no ribs, no chicken, no pork chop, no sandwiches. And so really it's kind of no bread, no, you know, no firm meats for six weeks. But again, in that soft kind of four week period in the middle, um, you know, they can have spaghetti with meat sauce for all I care, as long as it's not chunks. And they can have tomato sauce if they want, um, because they're, you know, they're not going to have heartburn anymore. Um, and so they can have a lot of different things. And it's all fish, of course. Um, but I think it gives them a pretty wide variety of, of uh, you know, different types of foods they can have. Excellent. I, I haven't heard the tuna or the chicken salad. That's brilliant. And the cracker. Oh, my goodness. I know. I, I kept it as a secret for a long time, and I surprised <laughs> patients with it at two weeks because they're thinking, I'm not going to have any meat. I'm not going to have any bread. And those are just really great cheats that I don't think any of my patients have had problems with. And it really gets them to that that meat and bread period earlier, just uh, again, one of those little uh, little life hacks for them. And 
and I think it makes them pretty happy. So I usually tell them at the two week period because I don't want to I don't want to confuse people in those first two weeks. I just I just want you to remember the full liquids for the two weeks. We're going to be seeing you back. We'll move on from there. Uh, but we do give them some some preemptive instructions. Excellent. Thank you. Well, before we wrap up, Haley, I just want to jump back to you and make sure we do a check in on viewers and um, see if there's anything else that you have to add. Yes, just a couple more. Um, someone asked where Dr. Goldberg's located. So Dr. Goldberg, do you want to just speak to the multiple cities that you kind of offer this procedure? Yeah, we have we have three offices where we do consultations. So we're in Middle Tennessee. So we're in the Nashville area. Um, and our practice offices are all just north of Nashville. So Hendersonville, Tennessee, Springfield, Tennessee. And then we have my nurse practitioner out in Clarksville, Tennessee right now who can do all the cons consultations. Of course, I do all of the endoscopies. I do all the procedures. Um, and I, you know, I like to talk to patients, meet them and see them. And, and I go through all of this with you. Um, so I prefer to see you personally, but for convenience in the Clarksville area, she does a fantastic job. And so we have a number of patients that come from Clarksville. Yeah, our other offices are 30 to 45 minutes apart. And so they may not want to take that drive in their follow-up sometimes. And so uh, Jessica up in uh, Clarksville will take great care of them up there and find out some, you know, they love her. Um, and so uh, they're, they're happy to continue their care with her. They see her beforehand, they see her afterwards. But um, yeah, the Nashville area, um, and um, just just right outside of Nashville. Excellent. Easy drawn to go to CMA Fest down there this week. If you come visit me and then go misbehave at CMA Fest. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> uh, okay, one more that I just have to ask because I'm curious to see how you'll answer this, but it's kind of anecdotal. It says, I had GERD and suffered for years. My dad told me to just drink water when it happens and it works. I haven't had to take meds in 15 years. Drink a glass of water or sip or two. Does that really work? Yeah, I, I mean, listen, I think that makes perfect sense. I mean, that's very reasonable. Uh, basically, when you swallow, you know, we talked about the how, how dysphagia earlier. Mm -hmm. We talked about the complexity of swallowing. And I tell my patients, I don't know how we swallow. It's an amazing feat that, that everything coordinates perfectly. But the bottom line is, when you drink, that starts that coordination, that starts peristalsis in your esophagus. So if acid or reflux is trying to come up, drinking anything or even eating can potentially help increase peristalsis to push it back down. So yeah, that's a, it's a great life hack. Good to know. Okay. Wendy, that's all we got. They did such a great job of addressing them as we went. Well, wonderful questions tonight. So we appreciate our viewers and, and, and appreciate the answers from our esteemed panel. Um, Want to go ahead and just let everybody know, number one, if you are looking for a TIF expert in the area where you live, uh, you can go ahead and access our physician directory, our locator at girdhelp.com. You can simply punch in your zip code and find uh, providers that are in your area. You can certainly find everybody in the U.S. by just zooming in or out on the map. So you'll even be able to find Dr. Goldberg no matter where you are. Um, we also have an app that is the first of its kind in the GERD space where it is patient education that you will have at your fingertips. It is customized for you so that you can go ahead and start journaling your symptoms. 
You can also see videos. You can learn uh, about GERD through various articles, etc. Um, and help you have a higher quality visit with your physician once you're ready to see somebody about your symptoms. Uh, it's a great help to your doctor because they can go ahead and start the workup process. It provides real-time information for them when you are experiencing your symptoms and helps them determine, you know, just the, the best pathway for you treatment-wise, whether that is is a, a specific type of diagnostic test to really pinpoint what you are suffering from, um, or whether that is just giving you more information so that you're equipped with more questions to ask your doctor when you see them. Uh, you can also access that at girdhelp.com. You can go over to the section that says get the app and it will uh, take you to your uh, app store, whether that is for iOS or the Android platforms. Um, Dr. Goldberg and Tina and Haley, thank you so much. Y'all, it was Haley's debut this evening. Terrific job from uh, the support desk. Thank you very much for being here. And uh, we hope to see everybody back next week for our TIFF Talk. We appreciate you uh, being with us and have a great evening. If you are suffering from chronic acid reflux and want more information, please visit girdhelp.com or download our GERD Help mobile app. Thanks for tuning into another episode of TIFF Talk. Leave your questions and comments on our social media at GERD Help. Live well, GERD free.